Man, you guys sound good. You really all should rotate and sit up front so you can hear yourselves. It's good up here. Man, thank you for being here. Mark chapter 8. Hey, guess what day it is? It's final exam week. You remember those? Oh, like, like oh, no, really? Yeah, um, this is kind of where we are. So in our text, what Jesus is doing, we talked about um, he's making this break. All this public ministry he's done for two years now, all pretty much done. He's focusing on his disciples, and before he gets there, he's got to give them a final exam. And that's where we find ourselves in Mark chapter 8, beginning of verse 27. Um, it, it's always interesting to me to, to remember those days, you know, that, that test that you're always cramming for, or the paper you had to write as the exam. I remember um, one, uh, it turned out really well for me, so I had to write this paper on the life of Christ. And so the library at Gray Lakes, you get all, you know, they have all these books, of course. And so we check out these books. My wife is already laughing. She knows it's hilarious. And so um, some of the students were a little upset with me because I had one of the books. It's like, well, I guess you should have checked it out before I did then, right? I'm not turning it back in because I'm waiting to the last minute, of course, to try to finish, finish this tape, paper and test and all that. So this really cute girl goes, hey, you really should turn that back in. And then if you do, I'll let you use my notes. Okay, deal. So I used her notes, wrote the paper, did the test, got a better grade. <laughs> I thought, you know, I should marry that girl. So I did. <laughs> what a great plan. <laughs> She's like, how can you do that? It's the same notes, same everything, but you get a better grade? <laughs> Yay. <laughs> yeah, preacher's kid, yeah, elder's kid. Oh, my goodness. All those emotions you have about, remember back when you had to, to study, study groups, all the reading you had to do, pouring over all the notes you took, all to create this test that you've, you know, are being applied to. And this is where we find Jesus with his disciples. The difference with this one is, this one's kind of a pop quiz, where they don't know what's happening. What's interesting also about this is that this one, has eternal, eternal ramifications. That's what this test is all about. It is a pass or fail test. Pass this test and you're exalted to heaven. Fail this test and you're condemned to hell. And so we're literally playing for all the marbles. And for Peter and the disciples, this is the greatest commendation they will receive, but also in the same relatively short time period, it's the greatest condemnation they'll ever receive as well. Meaning, hey, yep, you passed the test, but you have no idea how to apply it. Remember that? Or at the end of the school year, you get all those final exams done, and then what happens? Your brain just kind of unloads, <laughs> right? I'm done. Woo! What, did you, what was all that about? I have no idea. We'll deal with that next year when we start school again, right? And you just kind of forget it all. And that's kind of where we are. There's two questions with this final exam. And when you answer these two questions and understand correctly, it'll give you three directives about the Christian life. And here they are just up front, so you kind of know where we're going. The person of Christ, the plan of Christ, and the perspective of Christ. That's what you end up with. Let's just read that. Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 27. Jesus went on with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, here's question number one, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, second question, but who do you say that I am? 
Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged him not to tell no one about him. Verse 31, And he began to teach them, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And then he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Let's pray. Hey, God, thank you for this opportunity to once again gather, uh, to come before you, to worship in song and word, to praise your name, and to hear from your word as it clearly speaks to us. So, God, I pray that your spirit moves, opens our hearts and minds um, as only you can to reveal the truths of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. For two years, Jesus has been teaching about the kingdom, going all over the countryside. For two years, he has substantiated his authority by all the miracles he's been doing. All kinds of miracles, thousands of them, impacting thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people in some particular way. Not only to Jews, but also to Gentiles. Two years They've been, they, the disciples and everybody else, have been listening to Jesus teach specifically about what the kingdom of God is. Heaven, true life. What is true life here? To have life now, eternal life. To have life more abundant and free. For two years, they had all their needs met. Physical needs. Food. The whole deal. For two years, the disciples had followed Jesus. And all along, they were hoping he would be the Messiah. The Savior. The Chosen One. The anointed one, the Christ. Last week when we left Jesus, we were together leaving him out of the city of Bethsaida. They would not believe, and now they can't believe. And now you're past the point where belief is even possible, and that's where Jesus left them. Listen to this. If there was enough revelation that Jesus gave to condemn unbelievers, there's certainly enough revelation to convince believers. Does that make sense? Is that fair? They're seeing the same pile of evidence, but something's different. And we come to the point where Jesus' disciples, specifically through Peter's confession, finally come to the point to confess who Jesus Christ actually is. You have to go remember, when we started the book of Mark, all the way back in Mark 1, verse 1, that, that's where Mark stated that. He is the Son of the living of the Christ. At Jesus' baptism... God himself, they heard the voice of God the Father saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Even the demons in that same chapter, chapter 1, understood who Jesus was. Yet at this point, none of the followers make any declaration of who Jesus is. Why is that? It's taken two years to get them to this place, to answer the question. So let's look at the first distinctive, the person of Jesus, the person of Christ. Verses 27 through 29. Again, two questions. First one, Jesus says, is who do people say that I am? Let me ask you something. Why do you suppose he poised the question that way? Why not just ask, who am I? Well, I think we get some insight because it's important to know how you come to know who he is. And he's going to define that later in, in the text we, we just read. He's going to tie these two questions to guess, to, together with that particular answer. But what people are we referring to? What people is he talking about? Well, it's the people that he just left, right? Those are the people. It's the experts of the law. It's the people who, in their pride-filled arrogance and unwanted belief, can't you know, explain away the miracles that he's been doing for all these years. 
Even Nicodemus, a Pharisee who came to him at night, declared that Jesus was from God. How? Based on everything he was doing. But it still didn't get him to the finish line. So what's Jesus getting at with this question? Basically, I believe it's this. Give me the answer in human terms. And everybody around, who do people say that I am? Who do the philosophers say that I am? Who does the, the professor at the, you know, the latest college say that I am? Who does your neighbor say that I am? It, it's this human perspective that it, who do people say that I am? Give me the human insight. And then they start rattling off a bunch of names. The first one's John the Baptist, which is always interesting to me. It's the most common notion because there's a whole lot of mysterious beliefs about what happens when you die. Because John the Baptist, remember, was what? Dead, right? Herod had beheaded him over a year ago for calling him out, for telling him, hey, you shouldn't have your brother's wife. That's, that's, not, that's, that's adultery, that's fornication. Marriage between a man and a woman is permanent. You can't do that, and you can't steal, and all of that. So he kept calling him over and over to repent, and when you're king, you can you know, kind of do something maybe to your subjects, like lop off their heads, <laughs> right? And that's where John was. And so you get that from Luke 9 and, you know, Herod, maybe it's John the Baptist. Once Herod heard of everything that he was doing, maybe it's John the Baptist coming back from the dead. You couldn't deny what Jesus was doing. What was the other option? Elijah. Why Elijah? What's so unique about Elijah? Well, what happened to him? Did he die? Nope, he was carried up to heaven. So what's the inference? Well, maybe he's going to come back. And when you read Malachi, when you read some of the Old Testament, there's going to be this forerunner, this herald who comes before the Messiah. That was called Elijah. So we're looking for him. Maybe, maybe Jesus is that one. Maybe he's the forerunner. Maybe he's the herald that makes way for the king that is to come. So maybe you're Elijah. You're not John the Baptist. Matthew, in Matthew 16, makes the account, they actually, you know, prophets, and they say Jeremiah. Well, what's up with Jeremiah? There's this really strange tradition with Jeremiah that when, so Jeremiah was a contemporary Daniel when they get called off to, to Babylon with Nebuchadnezzar, remember? And so before they get invaded, he knows this is coming. So the, the story goes, or the tradition goes that Jeremiah goes into the temple, gets all the temple things, the, the, the covenant and all the, the, all the elements for worship, and takes them and hides them. So when they come back, he can bring them back out. So you get this whole tradition around Jeremiah. So there's all these possibilities but they were all wrong. A tradition about Jeremiah is also just human reasoning. And what's the point? Human reasoning can't get you to where you need to go. But here's what they all had in common. They knew, knew Jesus was a prophet. They all agreed about that. They knew he had, had to be from God based on everything that he's doing up to this point. They also were convinced he could not be the Messiah. It's not possible. Absolutely, he couldn't be the Messiah. Why? Because of all their tradition and all their thoughts about what the Messiah was going to be. We're still under Rome's domination. Roman soldiers are still milling about in our cities, in our country. It, it can't be. This, this, I mean, he's a really great guy, and he does these really nice things. He heals a lot of people, but he's not a military ruler. He's not a political ruler. He's not overthrowing Rome. He's not making the peace that we want as far as the nation of Israel. He's not elevating Israel over all the other nations. He's not doing any of this. 
can't be him. In other words, he didn't fit in their plan. Here's the second question, verse 29. And here's the switch. But who do what? You say that I am. By the way, that's the most important question you're ever going to have to answer in your entire life. It means more to you, whether you realize it or not, than any other question on a test, on an exam, when you go you know, to apply for a job. It does, it's, this is the most important question you have to answer. And you will answer it. Everybody will answer this question one way or another. Everybody is accountable to the eternal God who created. And the wrong answer means hell, and the right answer means heaven. Ordinary people have to answer this question. Philosophers will answer this question. Liberal theologians, Muslims, Jews, everybody, secularists, atheists, everybody is, in fact, answering the question. But the answer they're giving will condemn them. Because it's the wrong answer. See, it's not hard to find and understand who Jesus is because he's left you a means in which you can discover who he is and find out the nature and character of Christ right here. And all those people running around about, hey, you know, to know the real Jesus or the Jesus seminar or all those other things are just a means in which to distort, discredit, and undermine the word of God. That's all those are. And that's all they're doing. So it's not hard to find who Jesus is. John 20, verse 31. These things, referring to, I believe, the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all the Gospels, all four of them, they're written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. He is the anointed one. Remember, Christ isn't his name. It's a title. The Son of the living God. And so John puts that in his gospel. They're written that you might believe that he is the Christ. What's Peter's answer? Peter's answer is what we call the great confession. And again, Matthew gives us a little bit more volume to it, but you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's the confession. That's the answer. And what's interesting is they didn't have this yet right? They're living it. <laughs> They're right in the middle of it. Has, this hasn't been written. They're right in the middle of it. This is the first time this confession is made by his disciples. It's the second time in Mark that the word Christ is being used. Again, back in Mark 1, verse 1. And so we haven't heard this in eight, eight chapters. Two years we haven't heard this. Again, Christ is the word for anointed, set apart. It's, again, his title. It's his calling. You shall call his name Christ. You shall call his name Jesus, the name above every other name. Again, it's this anointing. It's this calling that he has on his life. It's given to him after his resurrection that he is Lord. It's an ultimate title, if you will. It's this idea of ultimate authority, which we understand of Jesus being a prophet, priest, and king. We understand when he ascends in Matthew chapter 28, that's basically what he says, right? Very clearly, all authority has been given to me. 
So you are the Christ, the Christ of God, or the Son of the living God. So how do you get there? See, it isn't the results of Peter's experience. It's not the results of his mind, his empiricism, and all the science he uses to figure this out. In other words, again, this is why Jesus, I believe, posed the question. It's not the result of human reasoning. You just can't connect the dots that way. You are the son of the living God. And how does Jesus respond to him? This is what Jesus said. You are blessed. Again, this is in Matthew. This is where we get this filling out that Mark doesn't give us. But you are blessed, Simon, son of Jonas, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. That's how you get there. Human reasoning will not get you all the way. Your experiences do not get you all the way. Divine intervention is what makes the confession. So when Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, no man confesses Jesus but by the Holy Spirit, this is the divine work that he's given. See, the natural man cannot d- discern spiritual things of God, right? That's, that's the idea Paul's talking about there in 1 Corinthians. You can't know him unless the Son reveals him to you. You can't know Christ unless the Spirit reveals him to you. That's the inference. That's who Jesus is. Everybody's asked the question. Everybody is answering the question in real time, in real life. You are, I am, everybody you're going to meet tomorrow has either already made sense of that, discounted it, but everybody has answered the question in this final exam. What's interesting to me when you get to verse 31 and 32 is, what's the plan? Look at that. After you get the test and you get this fabulous combination, Peter's on cloud nine, right? We got the answer right. Woo! Fine colors, we passed the test. And like I said, when you summer comes, you kind of get the test, you kind of chuck all that out the window of your mind. What's this for? I don't know. But we'll again pick it up next year when we go back to school. Peter's summer vacation was really short. (laughs) Verse 31, he, Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests, the scribes, and be killed. What? How can that be part of the plan? And then again, this is why, you know, you can't be the Messiah. But you just confessed this is who Jesus was. What's at issue? Jesus lays out what the Son of Man must do. It's his plan and only his plan. It's not your plan. It's not my plan. It's his plan. What's Peter's issue? Let's watch. Just continue going down through this. After three days, he rises again. Okay, so now this is all in the open. Jesus is teaching them what he personally is here for to do for all humanity. And they still don't get it. They still don't get the plan. So watch. You can have the person of Jesus Christ correct in your mind. But what can you have incorrectly? His plan for you. (laughs) Right? And that's where Peter is. And that's where we are. And he said this plainly. So Jesus is teaching them clearly. There's no ambiguity. There's no misunderstanding of this. How do we know? Peter's response. And Peter took him aside. Now consider what's taking place. Remember Peter? God bless him. Right? This is the Christ. The creator of the universe. Human, totally God. Totally man in human form. And Peter, hey Jesus, let's have a conversation. <laughs> All right? And he pulls him aside. And what I appreciate really about Peter is, you just passed the test. 
but you're still so ignorant. I appreciate that. <laughs> I really do, right? Because he's about to go down and just a glory blaze of flame here is what he's about to do because he's so passionate about who Jesus is, right? But Jesus, what? This is my plan. You're not fitting into my plan. Are you picking up the application already before we get there? Yeah. What does Peter say? And he began to rebuke him. That word rebuke in the Greek language, it's the strongest form of word that you can use to be disagreeable with somebody. It's the strongest form of argumentation, of, you know, pressing your point, pressing your agenda, all those things is what Mark is using behind all that. What's the plan? This specifically was Jesus' plan. What's Jesus' plan? He, his whole plan for being, for coming, the whole incarnation, was to come and meet the cross, right? That's his plan. That plan's done. That plan was done 2,000 years ago at the cross and his resurrection. Plan's over. Plan is what? Fulfilled. It's done. So how does that, amen to that. So what does that mean for you? Well, you have to ask the question then. What's God's plan for you? Well, first, here's the plan. It's for you to become a disciple of Christ. That's the plan. Why can you be so bold and, and, and so forthcoming? Because of what Jesus has done, right? That was his whole point, to make disciples. And the only means in which you and I can sit here, the only means in which you and I have it even possible for us to be called children of God is because Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. That's it. What did Paul preach? Nothing but Christ crucified, right? That's the point. Are you a disciple? If you've not made that confession, then you need to do so. Again, go back to John 20, verse 31. Go over to Acts real quick. I gotta, I'm just going to crunch through this as fast as I know how to do. Acts chapter 17. Verse 30. Or 31. Which one is it? I'll begin at verse 29. How's that? <laughs> Acts 17, 29. This is Paul. He's preaching at the Areopagus. He's, he's, he's basically laying out the gospel. And this is what he said in verse 29. Beginning then God's offspring, being then God's offspring. Remember, they didn't know. They had all these worships to, the, to the, all these gods. And, and they even had a sign that says, hey, um, just so we cover all the bases, we want to make sure we worship the unknown God. And that's what Paul is revealing to them, who that God is. Then being God's offspring, meaning we're, we're created in him, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed in the art and imaginations of man. Listen, verse 30, the times of ignorance have what? Passed. Those have been overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to what? Repent. Is it a suggestion? Is it a thought? No. It is a what? Command. Well, the first question that becomes in a command when you get commanded to do this or that, usually if you have any rebuttal, what's your first argument is, who are you to command me, right? What's behind the question? What kind of authority do you have to even ask that question? Well, Jesus has what? 
all the authority. Again, no ambiguity here. That's the plan. So if you aren't in Christ, you need to be in Christ. Go back to, I don't know if that's me, my bouncing or something, sorry. Go to Acts chapter 8. How, what does that look like? Um, verse 34. Philip's with the Ethiopian eunuch. He's teaching him. The Ethiopian eunuch is reading the book of Isaiah. He's asking a question. Hey, is this writer writing this about himself or is it about someone else? And so Philip's explaining that to him. Then Philip opened his mouth and began with the scriptures. He told the good news about Jesus Christ. Okay, Writing a scripture is this brevity. It says in one sentence all of the gospel. And I'm thinking, man, Philip, why couldn't they just write everything Philip said <laughs> in that conversation, right? I want to know what he said. Why? Because where it leads this eunuch, where does it lead this eunuch? And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. The eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? He's given him the gospel. The response is, hey, is there something preventing me from being baptized? Well, yeah. If you don't believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, if you don't make the confession, there's no need to be baptized. If you don't confess him with your mouth, you're not saved. If you don't believe him with your heart, right? All of those things... Romans 10 talks about, all of it leads to baptism in his name. And all of those places, well, you say, some, I've heard this so many times. Well, it doesn't mention belief every time, confession every time, repentance every time, baptism. Yeah, but you get the picture, right? That's what faith is. It's all of those things. So when Philip says, he's, when Scripture says he's teaching them all of these things, you, I can go to Romans 10. Oh, there it is. If you believe with your heart, if you confess with your mouth, you're what? Saved. Were you baptized? Well, it doesn't say that, so do I have to be? Yes. Why? Because this is what Jesus said to do. Do you get that? I don't understand that, that thinking. I really don't. To be made a disciple. Here's the second part of the plan. If you already are a Christian, to make disciples. Right? Ephesians chapter 1. I'll just do this. What time we got? Oh, mercy. I tell you, I, there's so much. Each one of these three could have, been a, could have been a message all by themselves. But you already know that by now. Ephesians chapter 1. This is Paul's writing to this beautiful church. Verse 17. Uh, I think it is. Uh, and he, Jesus, came to preach peace to you who are far off. Peace to you who are near. What's he referring to? What did Jesus do? Gentiles and Jews. Those are close. People far off. Right? For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, built on the foundation. That's chapter 2, by the way. I'm in the wrong place. But I'm going to read it anyway. Built on the foundation, the apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Okay, more about authority. Okay, now go back over to chapter 1, sorry. <laughs> See, Mike, it's not just you. It's okay, right? Off key, off scripture, whatever. We'll get there. Look at chapter 1, verse 17. The God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened so that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance to the saints? Interesting. We just left in Bethsaida. What did we leave? Guy who was blind, guy that was doing all those things. Jesus was, was doing all these miracles about sight. 
and he's referring to that again. Philippians 1, 9 through 14 talks about this very same thing, talked about the plan, but what does Peter not like? He doesn't like the current plan, so he rebukes Jesus. Isn't that typical of us as human beings, right? Because in my life, if you're anything like me, probably not, but I'm doing, God, this is it, and I'm, this is how I'm understanding, and I'm doing it like I understand your, in your word. And then in the same conversation in my own head, I'll extrapolate that out to what I anticipate happening because I'm doing it your way, right? In all those extrapolations in my mind, guess what's never there? Pain, suffering, heartache, frustration, none of, none of that's there, <laughs> right? It's never in, in, never in my plan, but it's there. See, the plan's not up for discussion. You submit to the nature and character of Jesus Christ, and as a disciple of Christ, and those of you that have been in the military probably get this, right? Once you submit, that's it. You no longer get to make up your own plan. Even when you're a commander and you look at that and hey, here's the orders and you look at that and go, man, that's going to cost me big time. Yeah, I don't think I want to do that. Yes, you, what do you do? You salute and say, yes, sir, and carry out the order. Well, what do you think it means when it says all authority has been given to me? That, that's what it means. The plan is not up for discussion. Where does that lead to? The perspective, verse 33. And there are two in Jesus' answer in verse 33. Get behind me, Satan. So here we have the student who passes the exam, gets all the accolades, you know, right? He's the teacher's pet, whatever you want to call it. Yeah! And then, like that, that teacher just lays him out. <laughs> Get behind me, Satan. I hope that doesn't discourage you. Because Jesus loves enough to speak the truth to correct it's not a condemnation in that sense but what does peter misunderstand he understands who jesus is he's just been corrected that it's not your plan and you're a stumbling block to me so you need to get yourself in line because this is the plan deal with it so get behind me why because you're now a stumbling block to me in my life you have people in your life like that I want to do what God wants. I want to do this. I want to do this. But they're, all, they're over here. Hey, hey, hey. Right? Why, why do you want to do that? This is far more pleasurable. This is far more beneficial. Yeah, but it's not this. Oh, God will forgive you. God will love you. It's okay. Just do what you want. No. It's not up for you. It's a perspective. And there are two. You are not setting your mind on the things of whom? God. Where is his mind at? The things of man. Two perspectives. If you go to 1 Corinthians, I'll try to get it right this time, chapter 2. 1 Corinthians 2. You want perspective? I would encourage you to read verses 6 through 16, but let me get to the punchline of verse 16. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? Do you hear it? Peter, who, do you, who are you? This is, this is Jesus the Christ. Who are you to give him instructions? 
Rhetorical question, right? You're not. But this is what Paul says. But we have what? The mind of Christ. You have the right perspective now. Paul writes the letter to Corinthians in, in those first four chapters. He says not to rely on human wisdom. Don't rely on it. In fact, he says basically cut yourself off from it. Now, let me give you this caveat. Because human wisdom, he says, has nothing to offer you. So here's the caveat. This is not to say, so don't confuse the categories here, okay? Right? Here's the category. Don't ignore what we call science and technology, right? I'm sure each one of you enjoyed the means in which you got here this morning, right? Because you necessarily didn't have to walk, ride a bike, or ride a horse. As some of you, I understand, like horses. Great. Right? But you like your car. <laughs> right? It's not that kind of human wisdom. We are created in God's image, for goodness sakes. We are image bearers, and by definition, those things should just come out of us. We should be creating all those wonderful things that human beings get to enjoy and use, such as all the farmers around here growing food. It's, it's quite an industry now. It's an amazing thing that so few farmers we have feed so many today, right? That's a good thing. How about washing machines? Uh, my grandparents had a cottage up in Harrison uh, at the Long Lake, and I can still remember my grandma with the tub, the ringer, and the washboard. And then we'd ring it out through the rollers. The kids are like, what is that? <laughs> Go to an antique store. <laughs> I like refrigeration. That's really nice. Yep. How about all the medicine and all the technology that medicine has provided for us to stay healthy and the things we can do? Listen, basically, it's this. It's all the things you saw in the cartoon, the Jetsons, right? It's all that technology. <laughs> and again, the kids are like, what is that? Explain it to them. It's just YouTube it, for goodness sakes. By the way, those are reruns when I was a kid, so I'm not that old. Okay, look it. Let me finish. No, well, I don't know. I'm pretty sure. I'm almost positive. The perspective we're referring to is human reasoning, which to answer, attempts to answer ultimate questions. That's the human wisdom, Paul's, the perspective that you and I need to have. That's what Paul is saying. Get rid of that. Okay? What are those? What are the ultimate questions of life? Oh, I don't know. What is truth? How did humanity get here? Where is it going? What happens when you die? What's life all about? Who is man? What is a woman? When men tries to define God, morality, joy, peace, love, and so on, those are the questions. Get rid of human wisdom because it leads you nowhere. All the philosophies, man's philosophies. If you're in 1 Corinthians 2, let me just, I'll just close with this. The means in which that happens is revelation, inspiration, and illumination. Revelation comes in verse 10. God has to, again, reveal it to you in 1 Corinthians 2.10. He's the one, again, pursuing. He's the one showing and demonstrating this. You can't come to this conclusion in and of yourself. Verse 12 and 13, it is the inspiration of the Holy Spirit whereby he gave the words to men to write down. And it's our minds, verse 14 through 16, that are illuminated. So you again get to the conclusion of the question where we started, who is Jesus Christ? That's the perspective you have to have. All the process of God the Spirit through his word 
so you and I can have the mind of Christ. That's where it all leads. So you can know his perspective. How does that apply to you today? On what? What perspective do you need today? I don't know. Clarity on the reality in the world we live in. How about that marriages for a man and a woman? How about all the controversial things that weren't so controversial even 10 years ago that you're dealing with today that certainly your kids, if they're in school, must deal with today as a society? All human philosophy, all evil, all directed and redirected away from answering the question in the affirmative of who Jesus Christ is. Because that's the plan. It's the clarity about the truth that we live in. Again, we talk about this, and I say this often, by what standard? And then we live that out as an act of worship, Romans 12 says. Living sacrifices. What's the sacrifice? I am going to follow the plan. Why? Because you're the Christ. I have your mind now. I can understand these things. I can say, this is right, this is wrong, and guess what's going to happen? Is the world going to be excited about you? No, they're not. And I so appreciate this about who Jesus is because he lets you know this ahead of time. So before you come to Christ, what does he say? Hey, you should probably count the cost. Why? Because there's going to be one. There will be one. It'll come in the form, at least in this country, friends, family, jobs, promotion. I mean, all kinds of ways. We're not at the place where they are in North Korea, China, India, and some of the Islamic nations where if you come to Christ the very next day, you could be hauled off to jail and executed. We're not there yet, right? And I pray that we never get there. But there will be a cost. Colossians 3, 1 through 10 says, set your minds on what? Things above. Philippians 4, whatever is true, whatever is lovely, whatever is noble, do what? Think on these things. Romans 12, be transformed how? By the renewing of your mind. I get personally frustrated when you hear people talk, especially, oh, you just believe, it's just faith. You do not check your brain at the door. It says, educate yourself. Educate your mind on the things above. What does that mean? It leads to the fear of the Lord. It means to loyalty. It means to knowledge. Hosea 6.6. 6. And by the way, the reference to suffering, you should make, if you're taking notes, write this one down. 1 Peter 4, chapter or 1 through 12. Because suffering brings clarity. And Peter suffered a lot. Listen, Jesus, the person, the plan, and the perspective. Did you pass the test this morning? Listen, either way, Jesus is the author and the finisher of your faith so that you will pass the test. Heavenly Father, thank you for your gift of the knowledge of God and Christ Jesus through your spirit to us that it is revealed in a means in which you desire it to be revealed. And only at the cross do we find it. So Father, I pray this morning that if there are those who can't answer that question in the affirmative, Father, you have to convict them. Holy Spirit, that is your role and job. It's certainly not mine. That is far above my pay grade. Only you draw people to yourself. So, Father, I pray as we 
who have been called, who have already confessed Jesus is the Christ, that in our lives you continually draw us and work us in your plan with your perspectives in this life. So our light is clear, understood, and shines ever so brightly to make the distinctions that you're called us and calling us to be. Father, to, to demonstrate your love to those people who are still in the darkness. Draw them to yourself in Jesus' name.